Good afternoon and uh, welcome to the Mershon Center. For those of you whom I haven't met, I'm uh, Professor Pete Montour, the June Mason Chair of Military History here at the, at the Mershon Center as a joint appointment with the Department of History. Um, today it's my pleasure to be able to introduce our visiting scholar here at the Mershon Center, Lieutenant General Mohammed Kareem from Bangladesh. Uh, General Kareem has a very distinguished background served as the military secretary to the president of Bangladesh and is currently the commandant at the National Defense University in Dhaka. Here at Mershon and I'm sure back home as well, he studies uh, security issues in South Asia, uh, in particular the roles of China and India in relation to the security of Bangladesh. Uh, he's an accomplished author with uh, numerous publications to his credit, the most recent being Contemporary Security Issues in the Asia and Bangladesh. Uh, today, General Kareem is going to talk to us about security in South Asia following the uh, terrorist attacks in Mumbai, and he'll touch on a number of uh, areas in an interdisciplinary fashion in what is very, a very timely and relevant topic to us all today. Uh, please uh, join me in giving a warm Rashawn welcome to Lieutenant General Kareem. Yeah, thank you, uh, Colonel Mansur, I believe. Not the professor, because he belongs to my community and uh, he, he has been to uh, Iraq, I believe, and was a staff officer to General Petrius. And General Petrius was uh, successful in combating insurgents in Iraq to a great extent. And I give credit to that, for that to General Petrius and his team for having been able to contain the insurgents in Iraq to a great, as I said, to a great extent. And insurgency can never be eradicated. That's the way we talk in the military. It can be contained, but it cannot be really eradicated altogether. And that's what is true in, in South Asia as well. It's really a pleasure and uh, for me, and I'd like to thank uh, the Merchant Center authorities for giving me this opportunity to talk to this very distinguished gathering. And I'm indeed grateful to Professor Harman, the director of the center, who invited me all the way from Bangladesh, and he has branded me as a scholar. I'm basically a so, uh, general, and that has made my life difficult. And that's why I have to give a, make a presentation on such a serious uh, topic. And I don't know how, how we're going to make it. But we soldiers, <laughs> we soldiers, we work, we fight, we, we handle the security on the ground. We understand the realities. We, we write less, we talk less, but we work more. But today I have to talk to you because you are all here all distinguished scholars who understand books. But then I'll try to combine the theory and the practice and give my perspectives as clearly and as easily as possible from the South Asian point of view. <coughs> With that brief introduction, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, good morning, to, good afternoon to all of you. And I would like to start. Uh, I'll use my uh, PowerPoints, some slides. This was, uh, I think, uh, done by a student from the Merchant Center who helped me in doing this. I'm grateful to him. So we start with the Southeastern security and the title was title given to me was after the Mumbai, Mumbai terror attacks. Well, that remains in focus, fine, but I'll cover the entire uh, canvas of Southeastern security. That includes uh, geopolitics, 
that includes counterterrorism, that includes the transnational uh, security threats to South Asia, insurgency, gun running, drug trafficking, and especially the, uh, the, the severe animosities that exist between Pakistan and India. And then over and above that, the Afghanistan issue, which is impacting on the security scenario of South Asia. And this has made it really vexed and complex. I don't see much way out, out of this uh, imbroglio, so to say. This is a real mess. I don't know if the Americans can help us out. Hopefully they can. But for the last seven years, they have been trying it. Well, I don't see much uh, way forward, but let's see what is the way out from there. So to start with, uh, I will see South Asia. Uh, I first, I would like to bring home to the point of two giants that we have in South Asia. Although China is not, so to say, uh, geostrategically a part of South Asia, but then India and China are the two giants in South Asia. They call shots. They mean business, and they have their lobbies. They have their allies and friends and, you know, supporters in South Asia. Some, like Pakistan, is allied to China, but with India, America is allied, being, a, being an extra-regional power, and that makes this scenario very complex. So I called uh, India and China as the geostrategic players. I borrowed this title from Business's Classification of Powers. He has classified the powers into two groups. One is uh, geostrategic players, and the other is geostrategic pivots. Geostrategic players are those who can influence things beyond their border. They can go into the other's uh, internal affairs and change politics, their economy, their military, whatever, their foreign policy or defense policy, and can change things. So in that scenario, I would say India and China are the geostrategic players, and geostrategic pivots are, are those powers who have to be taken into consideration before those geostrategic players play their game, game of geopolitics. So I, what I say, Pakistan and Bangladesh have to be taken into consideration in that perspective. And uh, geopolitics and power politics are definitely impinging on the, on, the, on the security scenario of South Asia. Like India and China are playing their game. They have the respective sphere of influence. India is trying to become a bigger power, an Asian power. It's trying to get a seat in the, in the, in the Security Council. China is trying to contain the Indians. Again, the Americans have come in, and so India is trying to contain China, or check China, or checkmate China, so that China's influence is minimized. And as I said, the American, <coughs> America is working there as an extra-regional power, but geopolitics and the power politics are galore in South Asia. That's what is my, my assessment, and you cannot minimize that. And things are linked up. State-to-state -state relations are also linked up by insurgency, by transnational crime, by the Kashmir issue, by the Afghanistan issue, by the border demarcation issues, by the land boundary demarcation issues, maritime demarcation issues, and then cross-border smuggling and you know, informal trade and so on and so forth, even prostitution, trafficking of women and ch child and all such things. 
are making the scenario very complex. <coughs> now, South Asia, in my uh, presentation, I would like to include Afghanistan and Myanmar also within it. If you ask me per se, South Asia is seven states. is India, Pakistan, Bhutan, Nepal, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Maldives. But Afghanistan has recently joined the South Asian uh, Association for Cooperation with the SARC. And Myanmar is also, I would, for the purpose of my presentation, I would like to include Myanmar as well. And I would like to call it one geostrategic unit. Because insurgencies in Myanmar also affects affect the insurgency in India or in or Bangladesh. Insurgencies in India also affect the insurgencies in, in Bangladesh. Insurgencies in India also affect the insurgencies in Pakistan. Or problems in Kashmir also is affecting the security scenario in India. So these are all linked up. So insurgency in Afghanistan is also affecting Pakistan, and those are affecting Kashmir, and those are again affecting India. So all are linked up. You can't see things in isolation. It cannot be dealing from one from the other. So it is a whole total gamut that you have to understand. The whole scenario has to be understood in perspective. Only then you can have a clear picture of what South Asian security is all about. <coughs> as I said, the entire region is plagued by insurgency. Bangladesh is a small country. Just as an example, we have uh, different states of India surrounding Bangladesh. India, like Bangladesh, is called India locked. All three sides, India is there. Now, there are about 200 insurgent groups who are operating in and around Bangladesh. You can imagine the, 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 the influx of insurgents operating in, 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 in different seven sisters of India, that's, they call it, surrounding Bangladesh. So as I said, <coughs> Bangladesh also has an, has an insurgency. So it has a spillover effect. Those Cummins try to get into Bangladesh, and our insurgents also try to get the sanctuary in India, and so, so on and so forth. Now, transnational crimes are also galore, as I said. Now, the relations between Pakistan and India are very important here. And this relation has come up mainly because of the Kashmir problem. The bone of contention is Kashmir, which was left unsettled by the British Raj when they left this part of the world. They did not give a definite solution to the Kashmir problem. They left it unsettled, and then the problem grew. It, it went to the UN, UN uh, Security Council. There was a resolution. It is not accepted by India today. Pakistan has occupied one-third of it. India has occupied two-thirds of it. Well, if I say occupied, then the Pakistanis will mind about it. If I say occupied, Indians will mind about that, using this word. But as a neutral observer, I would say this is unsettled, some kind of issue that is haunting the Southeastern security in a big way. And unless this almost intractable issue is resolved, Southeastern security cannot be solved. And President Nixon very recently has said that Kashmir is the most dangerous nuclear flashpoint in the world, of the world, because both India and Pakistan are nuclear powered. And in case there's a war between these two powers, another war, so to say, nuclear weapons in all probability will be used. And you had it. And that's going to be very dangerous. And this is also working as a deterrence. I'll come to that later on. So there is always an acrimonious relationship between India and Pakistan. And this is killing the human security of South Asia. This is, this is affecting the trade, commerce, people-to-people -people contact, press, media, civil society interaction. It is affecting everything of South Asia because of this 
this bad relation between India and Pakistan. This is affecting the, the consolidation of the SARC process that we have started in South Asia. SARC is, in, is not kicking off just because of the Kashmir problem, just because of this tense relations between India and Pakistan. <coughs> now, I'd I would like to see South Asian security in a, in a comprehensive package. We have traditional threats. We have non-traditional threats. We have environmental problems. We have sea rise problems. We have trafficking problems. We have insurgency problems. We have gun running problems. We have uh, child trafficking, woman trafficking, prostitution, so on and so forth. Now, that should normally be linked from the traditional security threat. Because two militaries are quite a strong military. India has a very strong military. Pakistan also has a very strong military. And they have fought many, many wars. In 48, they have fought a war. In 65, they have fought a war. In 71, they have fought a war. And after that, Pakistan had nuclear weapons. India also had it before that. And as such, no more conventional war has broken out between, between these two powers. So I would like to see the security in a comprehensive sense, and I would like to call it comprehensive security, and that should be emphasized in South Asian environment. <coughs> like we have human security, environmental security. India itself, in India itself, there are 400, 400 million people who are living below $1 a day per day. That's amazing. India is shining. There's a slogan that India is shining. At the lower level, India is not signing. 400 people are living below $1 a day. China has taken out 300 million people out of the poverty trap. And that's an amazing achievement for China. India could not do that. So I think that you have to address. India has nuclear powers. India has Jaguar bombers, Mirage fighters, F-18. F no, F-18, Pakistan has it. The, the, uh, the submarines, they are going for aircraft carriers. They're spending more than $30 billion on defense itself. But if you come to the human security, it is terrible. 400 million people are living below the poverty trap. Now, ladies and gentlemen, uh, what matters, again, I come to the geopolitics, is the national interest of yes to any country. It is the dominance. India wants leadership of South Asia, definitely. Leadership in Asia, definitely. Leadership in Asia Pacific, definitely. Pakistan wants to cut India to size with the connivance probably with China. That's how I see it. Then there are energy resources. Why the Americans are there in Afghanistan, or the Pakistanis are there, or the Indians are there in Afghanistan, maybe for energy resources. Central Asian republics are very rich in gas, oil, and water. So that, those are the flashpoints. Now, I would like to term it as eco-politics. America had uh, nuclear powers. So Soviet Union had it. Soviet Union had it, so China had it. China had it, so India had it. India had it, so Pakistan had it. And this is egoistic, jingoistic. Jingoistic fervor is very much prevalent in South Asian environment between Pakistan and India. And this is what is, I, I would say, putting things at absolute at stake. Things are not moving forward as far as the human security is concerned, as far as cooperative security is concerned. Now, there are alignments. India and America has going for serious defense cooperation. And they have signed a nuclear deal, civil, civilian nuclear deal. And thereby, America has recognized India to be one of the nuclear powers of the world. It, India has been included in the nuclear club. 
in an implied way. May not be officially, but informally, in an implied way. Implicitly, it is already a recognized nuclear power, just after India has signed this deal. And I'd like to quote from uh, Farid Jakaria from his book, The Post-American uh, Post World. He's saying that this signing of this treaty between India and uh, America is, shows a fascinating illustration of tensions between a purely economic view of globalization and power politics. There's a good economic cooperation with the American and Indians. India has opened its market after 91. India was a closed society. But after 91, it has opened its market. It's a free market economy now. So that's part, part of the globalization. But again, by signing this treaty, the power politics is coming into focus, has come into play. How? It wants to contain China. That's the implied way of having this treaty signed between India and America. So Fori Jagaria is saying this is a good illustration of both globalization, economic globalization, and power politics between India and America. So what it is giving rise? It is giving rise to India-China rising. Yes, very much they are rising. Economically, they are rising. Militarily, they are rising. Dominance-wise, they are rising. Geopolitically, they are rising. And blocks are emerging. And I would say blocks are definitely emerging. If I take China in one side, Russia has, is trying to side with them. Pakistan is trying to side with them. And if I take India, America, Australia, Japan, South Korea, and to some extent Singapore, they are coming into in, in some kind of blocks emerging. And this is influencing Southeastern security. <coughs> As I said, India wants to become an Asian power. India wants a permanent seat in the Security Council. That may be a little difficult because uh, China is already there. Japan is vying for it. And if India is asking for it, so three seats probably cannot be given to Asia. Probably, this is my hunch. Uh, but then India is trying for that. And Pakistan and China, I'm, I'm sure, will, will, will try to uh, block this. Now, is China being encircled and uh, contained? I would say it is being encircled or contained. Uh, and this has an impact on Southeastern security as well. Because China has good relations with Myanmar, very good relations with Myanmar. China has good relations with with, with uh, Nepal, China has good relations with Bangladesh, China has got excellent relations with Pakistan, and what I'm trying to say, as an Indian author just said, he just said it in this way, that China is trying to keep India boxed in, he has used the word boxed in in South Asia, keep it tied down to South Asian environment, not go beyond that. But India is saying, no, we would like to go beyond, because we are a rising power. Okay, the flashpoints that we have is the Kashmir, as I said, is the most dangerous nuclear flashpoint of the world. It's not my saying, it was said by President Kennedy, and this is an intractable problem. And unless you do something about it, I would urge upon the Americans, the British, the EU, and whatever, UN, if you can't do anything about this, problems will linger on. Afghanistan is a flashpoint, it is in a mess, it is a quagmire. It is an imbroglio. I don't know when it is going to end. The Americans entered in 2001. It is 2009. I don't think much progress has been done. The, the, the Taliban said, I find they are going for conventional attack. The other day, the Taliban had launched an, a conventional attack with 600 Taliban forces against the Pakistan outpost. A conventional, there's a difference between a conventional attack and a guerrilla-type attack. 
Uh, it was amazing to see that the Taliban have launched a, a conventional attack against a Pakistani border outpost. So they are regrouping. I think uh, the, the most important aim of any war is to defeat the, defeat the motivation level of your opponent. If you have not been able to defeat the motivation level of your opponent, means you have failed in, 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 in achieving the objectives of the war. This is how I see as a general. If you have not done, been able to do that, you have, you have failed in achieving the aims of the war. <coughs> the flashpoint, as I said, terrorism, it is absolutely too much. Bombay incident, of, you are aware of that. Kashmir, there is terrorism. In Afghanistan, there is terrorism. In Bangladesh, there is terrorism. In Sri Lanka, there is huge terrorism, LTTE. LTT. There are transnational crimes. In Bangladesh itself, there are 178 syndicates operating on transnational crimes. In a small country like Bangladesh itself has 178 syndicates operating in, in these transnational crimes, like drug trafficking, as I said, gun running, as I said, women trafficking, as I said. There are about 40,000 uh, 40, women working as prostitutes in the Bombay city itself. And people say that they are coming from Bangladesh. That's amazing. Some are landing in Karachi, some are landing in Mumbai, going to Calcutta or to Middle East. <coughs> Child trafficking, women trafficking, and insurgency, and so on and so forth. Now I come to Pakistan. This particular country is a little, very unfortunate country, I would say, put it this way. The moment it was born, it had to face a war in Kashmir. Well, it itself probably took, took the lead. It had sent the, sent the irregulars to take control of the entire Kashmir, uh, Kashmir area, but it was you know, blocked by the Indian forces. They also came down. So there was a war in 48. There was a full-fledged war in 65 over, Kash over again Kashmir to get control of Kashmir. And then UN had to intervene and stop this war. In 71, there was again a full-fledged war. And that war gave birth to my country called Bang Bangladesh. Uh, well, I'm not going to the nitty-gritties of those wars. If you ask me questions, I can reply to that. 79, Pakistan was traumatized. Afghan in aggression in, in sorry, uh, Russian aggress aggression in Afghanistan. And the Americans came in a big way. They were funneling funds arms, motivation, literature, training, armaments to, to those Mujahideens through Pakistan and ISI got involved. They got them trained. They were fighting the Afghans. They even had the Stinger missiles, one of the most state-of-the-art missiles that you can, we can think of, which are fantastically working against the Russian gunships. And uh, Pakistan got involved in that. The war was over. The Americans just left it. The problem was there. You know, in, after any war, you have to ha go for reconstruction, rehabilitation. Unless you have done that, the war is not complete. You left it to the, at, at the altar of the Pakistanis, and Pakistanis took advantage of that. They created Taliban's, and Taliban government was in force, and then that created the, the whole mess. And again, the Americans had to go in. So this country is getting traumatized again and again. Again, then 2001, after the 9-11, Pakistan and Kagan had to get involved, and Pakistan had to fight the war on global war on terrorism, had to take the side of the Americans, and the Pakistanis abandoned the Taliban's, which was created by Pakistan, in fact, who were trained and motivated by the Pakistani establishment. People say it is ISI. 
So now they have again taken the side of the Americans and fighting your war on global, global terrorism. And I call Pakistan is suffering from the swing state syndrome. At a certain point in time, they are having full freedom. Again, they have to go to, to the, on the lap of the Americans or to the Chinese or to the Russians. And they, have, they, are, they are swinging in different, on diff different occasions. So this country is getting traumatized. And that has a direct impact on the security of South Asia. And it is getting traumatized. That's why Pakistan decided to go nuclear in 71, 72. It's the then president, uh, Julfir Ghali Bhutto, had, had, had made a public statement that we will eat grass, still we'll have nuclear weapons. And Pakistan did it. We are a poor country, all right. We'll not eat three times a meal, a day, a, uh, th three meals a day. We will eat grass, but we'll have nuclear weapons. And they have made it. And that, has, that is working as a deterrence against India. And after that, you don't have any conventional war breaking out between India and Pakistan. Now, this has also given rise to non-state actors. You have Laskara Toyaba, you have, jo you have Joseph, Muhammad, so on and so forth. So many non-state actors in, in Kashmir, in Afghanistan, Taliban's, Pakistani Taliban's, Afghan Taliban's, Pashtuns are there. And then in India, there are many uh, insurgent groups. India is totally infected by insurgents, thoroughly. People are only talking about Islamic terrorists. But think about the Maoists. Think of the Nexalites. Think of the Bajrang Dal. Think of the RSS. Manmohan Singh has made a statement in 2007 that Maoists are the single most greatest threat to Indian security, not the Islamic terrorists. He did not say so in 2007. 200 districts of Indian, 17 states out of 27 states are directly affected by insurgents which are being controlled by Maoists and the Nexalites. You name uh, Andhra Pradesh, you name Uttar Pradesh, you, you name Odisha, Chhattisgarh, you West Bengal, Meghalaya, Assam, Maoist and Nexalites and other uh, insurgent groups are operating. I said 200 districts are directly affected by the insurgents in India. So the upshot was that we have nuclearization in South Asia, we have resurgence of non-state actors, and this is disturbing the fabric the territorial integrity and the sovereignty of the country is concerned. Call it Bangladesh, call it Nepal, call it Sri Lanka, call it Pakistan, call it India. <coughs> now, FATA is one area. Oh, sorry, the map is not here. Uh, it is on the northwestern, uh, northwestern side of Pakistan. It's a tribal area. It's a Pashtun area. That area is almost independent. It is within the territorial boundary of Pakistan but it is practically independent. Pakistan's reach does not really prevail there, and there's an independent country. They produce their own weapons. They have their factory, indigenous factories. They have their you know, AK-47, grenades and whatever, and they fight. They go inside Afghanistan, they come inside Pakistan, and they keep on fighting whatever the manner they feel like. Now, there's this point about Madras education, its impact on the whole of South Asia. People say that the madrasa has produced the Taliban's. Yes, I agree. The madrasa, hundreds and thousands of them are there probably in Pakistan. I think there are about 40,000 madrasas in that area, in that part of Pakistan. 
and they, they have produced these Taliban's. It's a religious schools, and they indoctrinate those people. They think that if you, this is a holy war, you fight against a foreigner. The moment you die, you go to the heaven directly. Well, that's the motivation level that he has, and he dies just like that. It's very, very dangerous. I'm a military general. I'm, I have been motivated throughout last 33 years, but still I'll think twice to die. But he doesn't think to, even once. I'll, not only twice, I'll think a thousand times to die because, <laughs> you see, I have, a, I have a son, I have a daughter, I have a wife. I have to think about that. But they don't think about that. So you can imagine the state of motivation level that they have. And can you really bring it down? What is the way out? Can you, this, is, this is the force. Motivation is the most, most uh, potent force that one can think of. It is more important than the, uh, in, uh, atom bombs, nuclear bombs, or whatever you call it. So Madras education has an impact on, uh, on breeding terrorism. I will take it, but not totally, because in Bangladesh, a survey was carried out. We found out that 80% of the terrorists are coming from the general education branch, and 20% of them are coming from the madrasa level, from the madrasa stream of education. So that's not totally true, probably. But of course, in Pakistan, that has an impact, and Madras education give, giving rise to terrorism. Pakistan army has become overstressed and fatigued. They're handling the Afghan border. They're handling the terrorism of the, of the Taliban's. They're also taking care of Kashmir. They're taking care of the Indian border. Uh, Pakistan army is definitely a very professional army, military. They have state of the art equipments. America has funneled very recently $10 billion worth of money. And I don't know whether it has gone to the military, but it's supposed to go to the civil reconstruction and development. But Indians keep on accusing uh, the Americans that you have given this money, and some of it has been you know, funneled to the Pakistan military, which could be likely, which is probably possible. I can't give a comment on that because that's a classified information. <clears throat> now, Taliban's are not giving up. That's a big factor. Terrorism is turning into insurgency. Now, Taliban terrorism has really turned into insurgency, and that is what I'm very worried about. It is very difficult to fight insurgency warfare. Counter-insurgency warfare is the most difficult warfare one, one can think of. It is said that it is more, 10 times more costlier than the conventional war. It's a fleeting target. You can't see the target. So whom do you fight against? You don't see the target. And that's, that's, that's what is a big problem for the Pakistanis, for the Americans, for the NATO troops, for the Canadians, for the Dutch, for the Germans. Generally, the Germans, Dutch, and the Canadians do not go face the Taliban. It is the Americans who face them, face the bullets directly. They have their combat troops who are facing the, these terrorists directly, but they probably are providing the support logistically. <coughs> I was talking about the Maoist. Northeast Indian insurgency, Nexalites, LTT. LTT is controlling the, the uh, northern eastern part of Sri Lanka. But Sri Lankan army very recently has made great progress in capturing some of the strongholds of LTT. And, uh, but I, I will again say it is very, very difficult to defeat, defeat the insurgency. You might take control of the, of the land, all right, but difficult to defeat them defeat them mentally. If you can't defeat them mentally, psychologically, you have not fought the, terror, uh, the, the insurgency warfare correctly. Unless they are willing to accept it, it is not defeated. So that's very important. They will come back. 
they will come back again, regroup. They will come back. And that is what, that is what happens. We have Laskar Toyoba, Joseph Muhammad in Kashmir, Huji is operating in, in Bangladesh. Now, there could be linkages between these groups. As I said, these are all linked up. Huji may be linked up with the Taliban in Afghanistan. I don't rule, rule it out. Huji that is operating in Bangladesh. Maoist may be linked up with the Nexalites. You never know. The other insurgent groups in Nagaland, in Mizoram, in Assam, may be linked up with, with Pakistan. I, say, I, I can't rule it out. So these are all linked up. LTT is linked up with Canada. It's linked up with Europe, linked up with Cambodia, with Singapore. They get the money, the arms from those sources. So these are all linked up. You can't delink one from the other. And that is, as I said, is a vexed, very complex problem in South Asia. Now I come to recent Mumbai State incident. <coughs> it has a serious ramifications to South Asian security. Now Indian security vulnerability has been exposed. I thought India spends more than $30 billion on defense. Their security system is very, very strong. And intelligence is one of the most important components of security system. And this was an utter failure of intelligence, Indian intelligence. You might say the Pakistanis have done it, and it's difficult to pinpoint the terrorists. They are fleeting targets. But over whatever may be the case, they are coming all the way from Karachi, if at all they have come, by a ship, then by a trawler, then by a dinghy, then coming to the coastline, launching an amphibious landing, launching a, an attack, getting divided into five groups, going into different places, killing the police, throwing the grenades, and then the commanders are coming all the way from Delhi after about 12 hours or 20 hours and taking control of the Taj Hotel and Oberoi Hotel and all such things. It does not speak very good security system of, of the Indian Armed Forces. Uh, this my comment. My assessment is like that as, as, as a military general. They took a lot of time in taking a decision. And first of all, it was an utter intelligence failure. There are 22 layers of radar coverage in Mumbai itself. Well, you might say, how can you pick up a dinghy in a radar system? Probably Americans could have done it. But there were satellite phones being those are working. Those could not be intercepted. I am told that the American intelligence had provided good inputs about the upcoming uh, Mumbai attack to the Indian intelligence. I'm, I'm not very sure about that. If they have done it, they should have taken it seriously and gone seriously to take care of this, this uh, melody. <clears throat> now, what might come as a result of this Mumbai incident? It could be a conventional war. And your uh, senator, Mr. McCain, recently visited Bangladesh, India, and Pakistan. He was talking to pre the president of uh, Pakistan. He, he said that I have in my personal information that Indian military is getting ready to strike your targets, the terrorist camps. So better watch out. Take, take control and take good care of Hindi what Indians are saying. Carry out the investigation and take proper action against the terrorists. Pakistan army also moved. They have moved some of their force from Afghan border towards India. That is also true. It is but natural. Any military would get ready whenever there is, a, there, is a, there is some kind of incident like this. As a general, one should remain prepared. As a military, one should remain prepared. If you are not, you will fail as, 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 as a general or as a military. But conventional war is no solution. 
It will further conflagrate the security scenario in South Asia. Uh, that is no solution at all. And if there was a solution, Indian population was highly enraged, highly charged. They wanted the government to act and act immediately. But government restrained. Condi Rice was there just the next day in New Delhi and said, hold on. You should not go for conventional war. She was also there in Islamabad and says, hold on. Because if it happens, then Afghanistan will go absolutely beyond control. It will be a total mess, and you will not be able to control. The genie will be out of the bottle, and things will go all haywire. And then you had it. And non-state actors will be absolutely rampant, and will be ravaging the entire system of security in South Asia. Now, what has done to us? It has really destroyed the confidence-building measures that were developing between India and Pakistan. There was composite dialogue going on between these two countries. This has been shattered. They kept Kashmir aside, but they were discussing most of the other items. They also had Kashmir in mind, but for the time being, they kept Kashmir aside. Siachen Glacier, this is the highest battlefield of the world. Can you imagine where even the organisms cannot exist? The Indian Army and Pakistan Army are sitting there on the, on the top of, the, of their mountain. It snows throughout the year, but they are there. Mad people, as I said, this is ego politics. They are so egoistic, they are so jingoistic. The Indians are there, so Pakistanis have to be also there. So that is called, that is called the highest battlefield of the world. <coughs> now, ladies and gentlemen, unless you do something about Kashmir, this confidence-building measures between India and Pakistan will be stunted time and again, whatever you may, might do. You send Condi Rice, you send Mac... What is it, Senator? Senator McCain. McCain. Or you send uh, uh, the Senator Obama, or the President elects Obama. He's still not the President. Tuesday. Tuesday. Okay, sir. Now, Afghanistan issues also will mark the confidence in building measures. Unless you sort out this Afghanistan problem, it is going to impact Southeastern security directly. And in Afghanistan, geopolitics is involved. Pakistanis are interested in Afghanistan because it wants a strategic depth, strategic backyard. Indians are also interested. Indians do not want Pakistan's stronghold in, in, in Afghanistan. Americans are interested. Chinese are interested. Russians are interested. So everybody's focus is there. The geopolitics is there. I don't know what is the way out from this. But as long as it is there, this is going to impact on the confidence-building measures that was going on, this process was going on between India and Pakistan. The Indian public opinion, as I said, is highly emotionally, emotionally charged about Kashmir. They do not want to compromise on Kashmir. Forget it. So what? This was a princely state. And it was left, this problem was uh, left by the Britishers, unresolved. And uh, so what is a Muslim-majority state? doesn't really matter. Kashmir, in fact, has got three components. One is Buddhist-majority, one is Hindu-majority, and one is Muslim-majority. So uh, there's a UN resolution which says that you hold a plebiscite and find out who wants to go where, who wants to be independent, who wants to be, go to Pakistan or to India. That can be decided. But India is saying that is invalid. In, after 71 World War, 71 War, in 72, there was a similar agreement signed between Pakistan and India in which Pakistan agreed the line of control 
between India and Pakistan to be the actual line of control, and this has been agreed in principle, and India is insisting that that should be the international boundary between India and Pakistan. But Pakistani population will not accept that. Again, as I said, this ego politics. India says nothing doing. This is an integral part of India, so we will not compromise on that. So it is very difficult. Now, Klaus Wies has talked about, the military strategist has talked about emotions to be considered in making a decision. And emotions are very, very ripe in Indian psyche, in Pakistani psyche. It is very, very strong with the Indian political leaders, with the Pakistani generals. BJP has good general, uh, like generals, good politicians who are always charged with emotions. Pakistani generals are, people say that they're a little hawkish, more hawkish than the Indian generals probably. And so they are charged. Emotions are working. Jingoism is working. Nationalism is working. And that might cause accident between these two countries. And the war might break out at any point in time. <coughs> However, cultural nationalism is at play. And this is very dangerous. Hindu, Hindutva or Islamic nationalism. These are very dangerous things. Please do not intermingle religion with geopolitics. And in South Asia, geopolitics has got intermingled with religion. And that's, that has made the scenario very, very complex, extremely vexed. Geopolitics is one thing, religion is another thing. It has got mixed up. It has got intermingled. Okay. But then, <clears throat> nuclear deterrence, as I said, mad, mutually assured destruction in the South Asian scenario, and the American diplomacy are the restraining factors between India and Pakistan, and they are working so far, but how long? Accident might take place any time. China at this point in time probably is not interested in the present imbroglio. Earlier, China used to take the sides of Pakistan openly. Earlier, China used to support Pakistan on the issue of Kashmir. The Kashmir is an integral part of Pakistan, but China no more gives such a statement. In 65 war, China had sided with Pakistan totally. In 71 war, or China sided with Pakistan totally, if not materially, rhetorically, statement-wise, morally and diplomatically, or in the UN, in whatever. But China is now keeping quiet. Maybe that is the Chinese policy at this point in time, because China would like to build its own house, put its own house in order. Afghanistan difficult to handle, mainly through the hard power. Military power cannot solve this problem only. Peculiar tyranny. This is one factor. Britishers had fought three wars in Afghanistan, could not control Afghanistan. They were defeated, they had to pull back. Jar Russia tried to conquer Afghanistan. Soviet Union tried to occupy Afghanistan, failed. I would not like to comment on the Americans' adventure. It's too premature for me, and I'm not all that an expert on Afghanistan uh, as far as the tyranny is concerned and other, other factors are concerned. Social structure of Afghanistan is different. It is, it is tribe-based. So it's difficult to handle this, this, uh, this particular polity. And the historical legacy have said so. It is difficult to defeat the Afghans. I said psychologically. Maybe physically possible, but psychologically difficult. So the answer is soft or smart power could also be another option. Let us mix it. Let's go for negotiations. Let's, let us talk to them. Find out. Get those powers involved who are, would be acceptable to the, to, to the Afghanistan. Do not, bring, do not think of the Taliban only. Let us think the people at large, broad section of the people of Afghanistan. 
if you can make some kind of headway on that. So what should be our response? My suggestion would be, well, absolutely my personal suggestion. It has nothing to do with whatever I thought. I have written it. If it is a garbage, forget it. If it, is, it makes some sense, take note of that. Uh, I would suggest that UN should get involved. UN Security Council should get involved. It is there already, but it should get involved more directly. Security Council should get involved. So that will give legitimacy in solving this problem. Unless you have the legitimacy to any power that you throw to tackle any particular problem, it's not going to work. It is going to backfire. It will, it will be counterproductive. Even for Japan, the UN came in. MacArthur was there because UN resolution was there, and it worked. So historically, even unless even the first Gulf War, UN was there, so it worked marvels. The second Gulf War, UN was not there, so he had to pay a very high price for that. Okay, powers like US, EU, China, Russia, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and Iran. I have given very selective names. Probably these powers will be accepted by the. Afghan people at last, uh, this is just my hunch. I'm talking about Turkey, I'm talking about Saudi Arabia, Russia, China has to be there, EU has to be there, maybe Japan can also be thought of, because we need money. The money, Japan can give us money, EU can give us money, America can give us money, China can give us money for the reconstruction of Afghanistan. A multinational force may be considered by the Security Council, I'm saying by the Security Council. A modus operandi can be worked out, maybe some kind of uh, negotiations, dialogue, and some kind of democracy, if possible. Their way of democracy, because they believe in, as I said, tribalism. Uh, it's difficult to implant the Western model of democracy in their part of the world. But, well, that has to be worked out by the experts. But something has to be worked out so that we, we can see the uh, light at the end of the tunnel. <coughs> India, Pakistan should not get involved directly. Well, that would be my suggestion. Negotiations, dialogue with the Taliban, with the tribal leaders, with the warlords can start. I think some kind of dialogue has already started, probably, by, uh, by uh, Saudi Arabia, probably. But America has to continue for some more time for a smooth transition. America is going to have a surge of another 30,000 troops. It will make 60,000 combat troops. That's a good number. But Afghanistan, is a, as I said, is a mountainous terrain. People are very unruly. There are warlords. I think you can have 600,000 of troops. Difficult to contain the insurgency. I say 600,000 troops. Because for one guerrilla, you need 10 soldiers. That is the thumb rule in the military parlance. And you kill one guerrilla, one insurgent, you'll find 10 are reproduced just tomorrow. And that is the thumb rule in insurgency. We have fought a war in counterinsurgency, Chitong Hill tracks in our part of the world. We have been able to contain it. We fought it for 30 long years. And we, had to, we signed the agreement with the insurgents only a few years back. It is, it is contained. It might again conflict at any, any, at any point in time if you do not handle it properly. Okay. Uh, capacity building like intelligence, like security forces, like police training, their armaments, modernization of the security system, 
intelligence sharing between the South Asian countries, which is extremely difficult, but still we have to do it. We have to make an effort for that. And non-interference in each other's internal affairs. In South Asia, each, every country interferes in, in other countries' affairs. This is very interesting. Even the, for running the elections, the other country comes and says, the, who, is, who is your candidate? Who is the good political party? They even fund the political parties. That's very interesting. It never happens in any other part of the world. So that should be stopped. Unless we stop that, probably we'll be in problem. South Asian treaty on non-interference in each other's internal affairs may be considered. India signed a you know, Panchashila agreement with China in 1954. One of the most important hallmarks or ingredients of that treaty was that non-interference into each other's internal affairs. So India has signed a kind of treaty with, like this with China. In Bangladesh constitution, we have one of the components which says that we will not interfere into in another country's internal affairs. And that vitiates the, the atmosphere in South Asia. So can you think of a treaty which will <coughs> make it binding for the actors that will not interfere in each other's internal affairs? This can be a good idea, and this might also salvage the scenario, will create a healthy environment in, in South Asia. <coughs> UN and SARC counterterrorism conventions to be strictly adhered to. There are 13 UN con uh, conventions on counterterrorism, and there are a few conventions on counterterrorism by the SARC, most of the parties of South Asia have signed that. Bangladesh has also signed all, all of those. But we sign it, but how much we practice on ground, that's very important. So that has to be strictly followed. And I'm sure the agencies like UN and the SARC, they should monitor that. Border security to be improved. So that the Laskala Tayoba, if at all they have come from Kashmir, should not be able to penetrate India. LTT should not be able to bring arms from Cambodia, or from Europe, or from Singapore. Or Huji should not be able to bring arms and money from Afghanistan, if at all they are bringing it to Bangladesh. The Maoists should not be able to get arms from, say, from China, say, from Cambodia. So the border control protection should be taken strictly and appropriately. Track to diplomacy, people-to-people -people contact, democratic governance, I would strongly go for democracy in all the South Asian countries. And that can solve much of the problem of South Asia, South Asian security. Bangladesh has democracy today. Nepal has it. Sri Lanka has it. India has it. Pakistan has a fragile democracy. That should be strengthened. That should be encouraged. I'm sure the present army chief of Pakistan is realizing that and trying to keep the army out of politics and trying to build it as a fighting force, professional fighting force. And that's the good approach that General Kiani is taking. <coughs> Address human security, I've talked about that. Education is a gray area in South Asia. Unless you improve the education, some, nothing is going to work. And religious education. So there must be a, the gap between the religious education and the general education, this must be closed, the breezed further. You see, it must be breezed. There's a gap. One is only giving the religious dogmas, doctrines, and the other is giving the modern science. So there's a gap. So give more science, technology to the mother's education, religious education, and give more some bit of ethics and values to the general education and try to bridge the gap and close it. And that will help the South Asian environment. And let's have more intra-regional balanced trade. The trade in South Asia is only 5% of the total trade that the South Asian countries have with the, with the world. Only 
So this should be increased. We have only 5% of the total trade that we carry out, or we have it with the, with the whole world. It is the, 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 the percentage is only 5 So intra-regional trade should be encouraged, but it should be balanced trade. We, we Bangladesh ex, exports from India $3 billion worth of goods. And sorry, we import from India, but then we, we export to India only $200 million worth of goods. So it's a highly imbalanced trade. And that is, again, a threat to the security of South Asian countries. <clears throat> we should have more foreign direct investment. You have those in, in India quite a bit, but you don't have those quite a bit in Pakistan or in Bangladesh or in Sri Lanka or in Nepal. If you could follow prosper thy neighbor policy for South Asian nations, if possible. There is a doctrine given by Indian former foreign minister, Gujral Doctrine. It was a very positive gesture. He said, India is a big country. We are a big neighbor. All are small brothers. I am a big brother. Okay, you take it, whatever you want. I do not want anything from in return. That is the essence of the Gujral Doctrine. That was very good, very good gesture. A big brother always gives a helping hand to the, to the younger brother. And that was a very good thing. It had five components, this Gujral Doctrine. And because of this doctrine, we have been able to solve the Ganges water sharing problem that we have with India and Bangladesh, and the insurgency problem that we have in Chittagong Hill Tracks. We signed a treaty with the insurgents. Because India helped us in, 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 in what should I say, in getting those insurgents on track so we could sign it. And this was the, this was the upshot of the Gujral Doctrine. So uh, if you can have some kind of doctrine like that, and all parties agree, and as I say, prosper thy neighbor. If, you, if my neighbor is doing well, I'm sure my security will be ensured, better ensured. If Pakistan is doing well, India's security will be better ensured. If Pakistan is not doing well, India's security will be at stake. That's for sure. If Afghanistan is not doing well, Pakistan's security will be at stake. So let's, if your neighbor is fine, doing fine, if Canada is doing fine, America is doing fine. If Canada was a military threat, then America would not have gone to Afghanistan. America would, have to, would, have, would, be, would, be, would be tackling Canada. You see, Canada is a big country. If Canada has a big military, then Americans would not have gone to Iraq or to Afghanistan. You have some problem with Mexicans, all right, but through uh, policing action, you are controlling that. Okay. Comments? And with that, I'll finish. <coughs> Possibility of a conventional war between India and Pakistan may not be ruled out. As a military general, this is my assessment. As a military man, I always think ahead, and it cannot be ruled out. And that will be very dangerous. Another Mumbai incident could be very, very catastrophic for South Asia. Hope it is not there. That's why I'm talking about capacity building, more security alert, more cooperation, more diplomacy, more negotiations. Internal political dynamics at times is overriding in South Asia. Like probably Congress has to win the next war, sorry, next election. So if you have an issue which goes, which gives the nationalistic fervor, which goes against Pakistan, it might give them a better vote bank. So it plays in South Asian environment. So I, I will not wonder, I don't, so I'm not wondering if Mumbai incident has something to do with this election that is forthcoming in India. <clears throat> Pakistan turning into a failed state 
could adequately destabilize the South Asian security environment. We must all be very, very careful. If Pakistan somehow is turning into a failed state, ladies and gentlemen, things will be very, very complicated, beyond control. It will be absolutely, as I said, things will be in doldrums. Entire South Asian security will be beyond control, as I said. It will go out of, out of the box. It will go haywire, haywire, absolutely. So we must see that Pakistan does not turn into a failed state. Hopefully it will not. Why should it? Because Pakistan military is a very, very professional, a modern military. And I'm sure the Pakistan military will take care of that. But then democracy must overtake the military. That also will ensure that Pakistan does not turn into a failed state. The remote possibility of a no-war pact or a no-first use of nuclear weapons pact between India and Pakistan is no way. India has proposed for a no-war pact with Pakistan. Pakistan says nothing doing. Sorry, Pakistan has proposed that. And India has proposed no first use of nuclear weapons to Pakistan. Pakistan has not agreed. And Pakistan has a declared nuclear doctrine that if somehow India is aggressing Pakistan, Indian troops entering the Pakistani territory, we are going to use the nuclear weapons. That will be our first option. Even the tactical weapons are used then the strategic weapons will come forward. Enter, select, sorry, enter Delhi city will be wiped out, just like that. And then South Asia will be affected. Pakistan's Shaheen missile, Shaheen to missile can reach up to Calcutta. And if 50 kiloton warhead is dropped in Calcutta city, Bangladesh will be directly affected. So we are also concerned about that. So South Asian security also involved as far as the uh, nuclear weapons are, are there. Okay. <laughs> As I said, please, ladies and gentlemen, let us not intermingle geopolitics with religion. I would urge upon the Americans, the British, the EU, the, the Palestines, the, the Middle East, Arab countries, if you do that, the, this world will be a very, very unsafe place for the human beings to live in a, in a harmonious way. So let us not intermingle religion with politics. Let the religion be different from geopolitics. And if you are doing that, some of the other Huntington's theory is proving to be right. He said, you name any, any, any hot spots of the world, you find there's a war between a Muslim and, the, and, and some, somebody else. You take Kashmir, you take Afghanistan, you take Chechnya, you take Palestine, you take Azerbaijan, you take uh, East Timor. He said, give me a pencil and give me a wall map. I'll show you all the hot spots where religion is being played. All, all the hot spots. Well, he has written in his book. And I, I really cannot disagree to that. So we must be careful about that. With that, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, for a patient hearing. All the best. And if you have your uh, interventions in forms of comments, questions, whatever. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. Thank you for a fascinating and depressing talk. Um, I have two questions. One is, uh, what's your recommended strategy for uh, demotivating insurgents? I assume that there's barriers to de insurgency, or maybe release insurgents. I'd like to hear some thoughts about that. And second, do you think the um, solution to Kashmir is the 1947 agreement to have a referendum? If not, what is a possible? 
Right, sir, you are very right. Uh, Demotivating the insurgents, it varies from context to context, from country to country, from the type to type. If you are meaning the Taliban's probably in Afghanistan, that's the sore point. Or if you are meaning the Kashmiri insurgents, that's another sore point. Now, uh, <coughs> unless they are convinced that uh, whatever their opponents, unless they are convinced about the legitimacy of the, of the op opposing power, they will not be motivated. You must, you must throw an instrument, and legitimacy comes from the Security Council, as I said, they, will not, they are not going to accept it. And if they are convinced that it is going against their culture, it is, against, it is against, going against their religion, against their system, against their country, they will not get demotivated. No way. And by military means, you cannot do that. So what the way, as I said, is talk to them and find out a modus operandi. Bring out a modus operandi that, that fulfills the aspirations of the people of that country, keeping in mind their traditions, their values, their ethics, their culture, their religion. You have to absolutely, this is what is the essence of counterinsurgency warfare. You have to value their religion, even religious sites are important. Their values are important. They have to con get convinced that yes, they honor our system. Those people who are coming to so sort out this problem, they honor our system, and we will have a country which will be stable. Unless you convince them in this way, they are not going to take it. But it must have the legitimacy of the UN Security Council. And the actors who are playing must be acceptable to them. Like as I said, probably Iran will be acceptable then to them. Probably Saudi Arabia will be acceptable to them. Probably Turkey will be acceptable to them. And if you have a multinational force at all, maybe they can come from Malaysia, from Indonesia, from Morocco, from Bangladesh. Such country force may be acceptable to the Taliban's. About the Kashmir issue, I don't see any. It is very difficult to see any. It's an, it's, a, it's, a, it's an intractable problem. Because both Pakistanis and Indians are highly charged on this issue, emotionally involved. But if somehow Pakistan accepts that line of control as the de facto international border, things can be sorted out. Now, the, uh, that uh, UN resolution, which called for the referendum, is still valid. Although similar agreement was signed, where it was accepted that that line of control is the de facto line of control. Pakistan has accepted in an implied way, but that has, cannot in any way overrule the UN resolution. But Indians say that is invalid. So that has created another problem. I think over a period of time, that line has to be accepted probably by Pakistan and India, and something can be worked out. But Pakistani people at large probably will not accept that, even if the political leaders ex try make a venture on that. Pakistani people at large, large at, at this point in time, would not accept that. So it is a very difficult question to uh, handle. And the Americans were trying to do something about it. President Clinton asked for you know, arbitration or do some kind of uh, diplomacy. Indians just snubbed him, get away from this. Indians just snubbed him, and the Americans pulled out. If the Americans are pulling out, then well, we have no way out. So I don't see any, any, any solution in the near, near future. But if the entire, entire scenario develops in a healthy way, in a better way, I think things, we will find out a way for the Kashmir. But so far, it is intractable. Thank you, sir. Yes, sir.
Mission Safari Tayyaba Elevation Muhammad in Taliban, another group is a non-state actor. But after all, they are not non-state actors. When you look at the Mujahideen in Afghanistan against the Soviet Union, they were supported by the United States, by the Pakistan and the Gulf countries. So the supporters were outsiders. Uh, in, in the current context, the Taliban are, we know, and you know, and everyone else, that they are supported by the ISI in Pakistan, and so is Jaisi Muhammad and Safari Tayyaba, which, uh, which they did the terrorist act in Mumbai. So they are not as non-state entities either. So this is very important. And also coming to your, one of your suggestions about Afghanistan, that some of these countries should get involved, like Turkey, for example, like Iran. Iran and Pakistan were the two countries which really, uh, after the, when the Soviets withdrew from Afghanistan and Americans had lost, lost interest, these two countries were very detrimental to the future, the worst conditions in Afghanistan. Both Iran and Pakistan interfered in Afghanistan, and Afghans do not want anyone of them to have any part in the future of that country. So if it would be probably the control of Islamic State, or maybe like countries that you mentioned, Malaysia, Indonesia, and Morocco and Tunisia, which are very far from, not the next door neighbors like Tajikistan. I, I also included Bangladesh. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Raisa, your point is well taken. Iran and Pakistan involved uh, in, in Afghanistan, I, t I take that point. But why I'm bringing Iran here, well, this is a, just a suggestion. It should be debated, you know, it should be dissected. These, all these suggestions should be thoroughly discussed, and you have to see the pros and cons. Why I was thinking of Iran is Iran is a very important player in the geopolitics of that area. Without Iran, uh, probably Americans also cannot make, make much headway. Iran is a big threat. You see, the Middle East politics is divided into two groups. One is led by Iran, the other is led by Saudi Arabia. If Saudi Arabia is coming to meddle in the affairs of Afghanistan, then Iran will not like it. And Iran is a potent force now. From that perspective, I was thinking of bringing Iran. If you do not bring in Iran, you'll find things are not moving. They'll create problem. They'll create problem, problem in the borders. So unless you keep the neighbor happy, but if you, again, bring Pakistan, India will not be happy. So the, let this two be away from this uh, negotiation, negotiating table. So that's why I brought Iran, but well, that can be always worked out. Turkey may be acceptable. As you, as you said, Tunisia, Morocco, fine. I, I take your point. And you're saying that they are not non-state actors. Well, uh, my friend, uh, you, you are probably right from your point of view. But if I, as a political scientist, I understand, if you do not have a state which is not recognized by the United Nations or by the world at large, nation state, I can't call you a, sta a nation state. Taliban's are have no specific geography, no sovereignty, no territorial integrity. You call Joseph Muhammad or whatever, they're fitting targets. So I can't call them states. I can't call them state actors. They're definitely non-state actors. I'm talking from absolutely from the political point of, political science point of view. Yes, some of the scholars, they say that since they are aided by the state machinery directly, so they are not non-state actors. But they are behaving, they are performing, they are working like non-state actors. They don't have specified geographical entity. They don't have sovereignty. They are not recognized by the world. They are called terrorists by the UN. Joshua Muhammad and uh, Lashkar-e-Toyba or uh, Jamatul 
Dua are declared terrorist organization by the UN. So how can I call it a state actor? Right, sir. Next. Sir, please. You made a statement that's changed uh, thinking on my part, and that was you, you made a statement that 80% of the Taliban and their variety of individuals were coming out of the public education system rather than the Madrasha's education system. Can you help me understand? Oh, sorry. I Sir, you are right. I think you got me wrong. That was meant for Bangladesh. Just for Bangladesh. Bangladesh, yeah. Oh. Yeah, I was only meaning for Bangladesh. But even for Bangladesh, why would, why would that fundamentalist group come out of the public education system? Well, that's a, that's, a, that's a mystery. That's a real mystery. I, I was also taken aback. People all over the world say that the, uh, all the Taliban's and all the terrorists are coming from Madrasa. But we carried out a survey. I belong to a, an institute where we carried out a research, a field research, where we found that 19% of the terrorists are coming from Madrasa. Rest 81% are coming from the general education. The bombing that was carried out in, in UK, railway station, the gentleman was an engineer from India. He studied engineering in an university. He's motivated. What can you do? Well, that's again a mystery. So I'm talking about this motivation level is very important. Unless you address that, you cannot sort out this problem. Unless you address the motivation, psychological state of a, of a human being, for why he is, is he doing it, you cannot solve this problem. So I was meaning actually for Bangladesh. Thank you. Ba yeah, thank you, sir. Yes, sir. Besides the uh, Pakistani military, what are the other institutions within Pakistan that are capable of holding that state together as it attempts to restructure its government along democratic lines? Yeah, that's a very difficult question to handle, actually. The, the only good organized force that Pakistan has is the Pakistan military. Political parties are organized, but it is, it is, it is localized. Like PPP is localized in Sindh and to some extent in Punjab, whereas uh, Nawaz Sharif's party is localized in, 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 in Punjab but not in Sindh. Balochistan has its insurgency problem and it has its own regional party. Peshawar has its own regional party. But still, I would say PPP and uh, the Norseries party, they have got national uh, charisma. They have got national holding. And they can play a good role in keeping this country integrated and take the democracy forward. Uh, other than that, I think the civil society in Pakistan is coming up in a big way. They, like the lawyers, had played a very good role in getting back democracy in Pakistan, the judges. The civil society is get, getting resurgent. I would say they are coming up in a big way in Pakistan. Modern education is developing in Pakistan in a big way. This is a very good sign. There are some of the finest universities coming up in Pakistan, and that's a good sign. So we should encourage the civil society, the modern education in Pakistan, which will keep this country united, other than, if you say, Pakistan army and these two political parties, PPP and the PML of, sorry, Pakistan Muslim League of uh, Nawaz Sharif. These two parties, they should be encouraged so that democracy sustains, democracy thrives, democracy become, becomes stronger, and it becomes, army goes to the, goes to the barracks, and it, do, it does its own job, and democracy takes stronghold in Pakistan. That is how I would say, suggest. 
alternative solution is to convince the Pakistani government that it's in their interest to conduct a counterinsurgency campaign in the Fatah and to make it impossible for the Taliban and al-Qaeda to have a, a, a safe haven in that area, which then puts them across the border into Afghanistan where we can reach them with our military power and with our counterinsurgency campaign. What, what are the chances of that happening? The Pakistanis realizing that the existence of the Taliban and Al-Qaeda within its own borders is a threat to its uh, sovereignty and not just a tool to be played in this geopolitical game that you so well described. You're, you're very right, sir. Taliban's, I think Pakistanis, they realize the Taliban are a threat to the security of Pakistan. I think the Pakistan establishment absolutely realize, realizes that. If you read uh, General Musharraf's book, uh, In the Line of Fire, he's saying that these Taliban had attempted on his life three times, four times. They wanted to kill him, assassinate him. So they are a, they are, the other day, Marriott Hotel was absolutely demolished. So it's a threat to Pakistani security, to the fabric, the social sense fabric. That is absolutely, I'm sure the Pakistani military realizes that. But you, are, you might say, you are right in saying that Pakistan army is probably not all that sincere in evicting them out from, from the Fatah area. That could be true because they belong to the same religion, same culture, same tribes. It's very difficult to kill your own brother. So emotionally they are involved and they may not probably get that motivated, but they're still fighting. The Pakistan army has lost hundreds and thousands of troops in, in, in that part of the world, of their country. So I would fully agree that it will be to Pakistan interest that this problem is solved. But then, how are you going to do that? That is very important. Unless you have the legitimacy, the international force, the international legitimacy, supporting it, this is not going to work. Pakistan all by itself cannot work. So unless you have an international sort of consulting group, whatever you call it, quartet or whatever you call it, contact groups, which is ratified, supported by UN Security Council, Probably this is not going to work. Well, that would be my, my way of thinking. And those parties, those actors given should be acceptable to the, to the Pakistanis, to the Talibans, to the tribes, tribal people and whatever. Unless that legitimacy is there, it's not going to work. And as I said, those actors have to come forward. Like Turkey, as I said, Saudi Arabia, US, China, so, uh, Soviet Union. No, it's no more Soviet Union. I think it's Russia only. Yeah. <coughs> so on and so forth. Right, sir? Democracy. Yes, sir. Please. Yeah. At the beginning of your talk, you mentioned the more than 400 million, I think it was, uh, people who are living in the regional in India that on less than $1 a day. Um, and um, I guess, I mean, in, in your talk, which I, I really enjoyed, you addressed that, you know, demotivating Movements in certain parts of India, of course, breed on the kind of 
rides, the kind of national rides, you know, that kind of, you know, all, all these different things. Could you comment on that? Yeah, ma'am, you're absolutely right. I think I mentioned about the human security. And him Human security has, has, has two components. Mm -hmm. One is freedom from fear and the freedom from want. Yeah. Want is food, shelter, uh, medical system, and want, uh, and the freedom from fear is law and order, and you have security, individual security, your household security, your societal security. That must be ensured by the state. And unless this is addressed, and this is not being addressed adequately, that's why you, say, as you, you rightly pointed out, these next lights are coming up, these Maoists are coming up, and there, as I said, 400 million, 400 million people are living below the poverty line in India itself. And in Bangladesh, 40% people are living below the poverty line. And 20% people of Bangladesh are hardcore poor, hardcore poor. So, well, that can be a, another discussion by, by itself. Human security can be a subject by itself. So that's a vast area, and well, I'm, no, I'm not an expert, but the only thing I can say, that human security, as you say, rightly said, must be addressed by the South Asian governments. And the SARC can be a, help us in, in a big way. UN can help us in a big way. The donor agencies can help us in a big way. And they are doing their job. UN, different UN bodies are working. Different NGOs are working. Like microcredit in Bangladesh is doing a good job. Uh, or, in, or in some of the South Asian countries, they are doing a good, good job. So that must be addressed. That's, a big, that's the biggest, biggest challenge for South Asian countries. I don't deny that. And that is giving rise, rise to all these problems, all these insurgencies, all these terrorists. You're absolutely right. I, I take your point. But human, as I said, human security is a bigger issue for South Asia. Of course, I take it. Thank you very much, ma'am. Yes, we have uh, somebody from the Air Force. He belongs to my, uh, uh, my profession. What is the way out? We should help the new Pakistani government. The, 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 uh, the, uh, what I would suggest, the military should not come forward. Democracy is the way out. Military is there, of course. Military will fight it. But military has, got, has gone to some kind of truce with the tribal leaders. Because what happens in the tribal system is, whatever the tribal leader says, the people listen to him. So if the tribal leader is happy, the others will automatically follow suit then you can control the situation. So Pakistan government at, the, at this point in time is trying to have control on the tribal leaders. That's why it is having a, an understanding with the tribal leaders. That has been criticized in the press. Press, I fully agree. But what is the way out? Very difficult to fight them out. And as I said, they will not, Pakistan army will not be fully motivated, totally motivated to fight out these Taliban's. That's, that's the reality. You have, to, you have to agree to that. Please. They are, they are fighting, all right, but it's a very difficult terrain. It's a fleeting target. They are, at one point in time, they're in, inside Pakistan, again they're going to inside Afghanistan. They're again coming back to Pakistan. So this is a fleeting target. It's difficult to handle them. But I, I wish Pakistan army should have been more sincere. Pakistan army has lost about 2,000 plus troops in that Fatah area. 
Yes. It seems like under Musharraf that they did work through the tribal leaders to find them. Yeah. That's not a bad strategy. That's not a very, uh, I would say that's a cost-effective strategy. Why not? That can also work. That's fine. But I said, I again say, unless there is international group which is sanctioned by the UN Security Council, structured group, this will be all bits and pieces solution to the problem. Okay? Today it is good, tomorrow it will be bad. And insurgency is like that. Today it is good, tomorrow it might become bad. You never know. It comes back. Okay? Thank you, sir. Yes, please. In 2003, I went to Pakistan, and I met General Irfan Aziz. He was one of the generals who fought against Russia. He said it was not Mujahideen who was fighting all the way. It was also Pakistan regular army in Mujahideen dress. And they said they lost so many people. Pakistan army lost unofficially. Pakistan regular army lost so many. His explanation was the Taliban and all this and Pakistani people are anti-Americans because they said what America has given to us. They gave us arms in 10 billion dollars to Pakistan, and it was meant for education, for infrastructure, for development. Well, how can you give foreign aid for the military? This is never permitted. It's not permitted. It's not at all permitted. But India accuses that some portion of it has been funneled to the Pakistan military. That can always happen. Well, I'm, I'm not contesting that. But the point is, if Pakistan army has fought in Afghanistan in 79 against the, against the Soviet Union, they have done a right job because they are defending their country. Otherwise, the Russians would have reached Karachi seaport because they are trying to reach the hot water port in Karachi. So Pakistan was very scared. The Russian uh, tanks will roll down to water and the Karachi one uh, motor ports, and it could be dangerous. So Pakistan army had taken it very seriously. I, I was not aware of this particular piece of information, but if they have fought it, they have fought it for their, for their interest, for their territorial integrity, for their security. That is perfectly all right. Now, <clears throat> yes. As I said, if internationally things are handled, then AIDS, reconstruction money, and so on and so forth should come forward. You need a lot of money for reconstruction of Pakistan, for Afghanistan, for India, and what, so on and so forth. India is a very rich country. Compared to that, Pakistan is a poor country. Pakistan probably will need more, uh, uh, more aid money, fine. But again, uh, probably it has to be overseen by the UN agencies. But unless you stop the fight, Nothing is going to work. Unless you, you contain the insurgency, nothing is going to work. So that should be your first focus. And this should follow. 
security and development must go hand in hand. You ensure security, take development. You have development, then you will have security. It is all linked up. It's not my saying. It's, I think, famous uh, McNamara saying that security and development, they go hand in hand. And that must be tried. And that is how we fight the insurgency warfare. OK, sir. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Let me know. My pleasure. Well done, sir. My pleasure. Great, great comments. Thanks for giving me this uh, opportunity. And it was a pleasure. Sure, we all learned a lot. My pleasure, sir. It's not an area of the world that Americans are very conversant in. <laughs>